The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul pins these words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I want to preach for the next few moments on a familiar subject in this church, the subject of holiness. And I know that there are some different nuances that, uh, when, when it comes to this word holiness. So I want to be very clear on what I mean this morning, the angle that I'm, I'm preaching from. To be holy as we know, means to be set apart. Namely, it means to be set apart from the world and to be set apart for God's good purposes in the world. So, positionally, we know this, every believer is holy in Jesus Christ. We have a position of holiness, so we call this positional holiness. That's not what I want to address today. I want to talk on what we might call practical holiness. This is the biblical call to live our lives as what Jesus would say is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. There is a scriptural mandate to live in a way in which God is glorified in and through our behavior, our actions, our attitudes. That's what we're after. And so I have three simple points today. I want to talk about the system behind holiness then secondly, the substance of holiness. And number three, the strength of holiness. So the system, the substance, and the strength. Can you remember that? All right, because I couldn't give out note sheets today. So number one, the system behind holiness. In other words, what is it that produces holiness in the life of a Christian? Let me point you to verse 11. The Bible says, For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Now think about this. The grace of God then is not some obscure, subjective element of the Christian faith. It's not what Paul's describing here. Notice the wording. The grace of God is an objective reality. It has appeared. John MacArthur in his great commentary rightly states that the grace of God is more than a divine attribute. It is a divine person, namely Jesus Christ. So when Paul speaks of God's grace here, here's what he's speaking of. Don't miss this. He's speaking of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The one who personifies God's grace. And this idea is clear. It's drawn out in verse 14 when, when Paul says that Christ gave himself to redeem us. That's the grace he's talking about. So the grace of God is used here is simply Christ's redemptive work. That's very important. Now, quick note. 
When it says that that work, that grace, is bringing salvation to all people, Paul is not preaching and teaching uh, about universal salvation. He's not saying that every man and woman will be saved. We know that is not the case. What it means is that all people groups can be saved through Christ. This is not, in his context, this is not a, a Jewish gospel solely, nor is it a Gentile gospel only. No, it is a people gospel. It's, a, it's the gospel of Christ, and it's for all the nations. Amen? It's for every generation, every people group. All those who would call upon the name of the Lord can be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now, here is what is interesting, and this is the main point of my message. Listen closely. For many years, the church has created this kind of rigid, false dichotomy between the preaching of grace and holiness. Think about this. Here's what I mean. So if I'm preaching about grace, surely there's going to be someone with this false assumption that I must be light on sin. Is that true? But then on the other hand, someone's going to hear me this morning preaching on holiness, and they're going to say, well, that's just one of those holiness churches, right? He must not believe in the grace of God. And so these are kind of, these two elements of our faith are kind of pitted against one another. But the Bible actually connects grace and holy living, and we see this here in the passage. This is profound. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. What is training us? God's grace. Did you get it? God's grace is training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. See, I'm a grace preacher and I'm a holiness preacher. Those two things can work together. See, there, there, I've had people say to me, I did a whole series on grace, and I've had people say to me, Pastor, you better be careful preaching that grace stuff because it will cause people to sin more. They'll use it as a license to sin. But I would argue that if it is a true believer and they hear the message of the grace of God, that it would not uh, compel them to sin, but it would compel them to live holy and blameless lives. So here's the connection Let's go back to this verse, verse 11 here. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Note that word salvation. And that salvation, that grace is training us in holiness, okay? So through the cross of Jesus Christ, through which we are saved, we are redeemed, meaning we're delivered from sin and its consequences. We are made right with God through his cross by faith. That very grace, that salvation is producing in us a desire for holiness. So what Paul is saying, I believe, is this, that true Christians, we should be so overwhelmed, so taken back by, so in awe of God's grace in Christ that it should produce in us this desire to live for Him. Is that true? The beauty of grace should so change us that we want to live for the glory of God. And furthermore, here's what grace does. By Jesus coming and living this perfect life and giving himself as a ransom for many, 
we have this great example of what it looks like to live for the glory of God. So the grace of God, in a sense, is training us in that way as well, is that we get to see, particularly now through um, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get to see the personification of what it looks like to live for God's glory. We get to see that real example in Jesus Christ. So God's grace is what drives or produces holiness in our lives. So we ought to relish the grace of God. Any grace people in here. Amen. So that's the system of holiness. Number two, the substance of holiness. So this life of holiness, Paul describes in a negative and with negative and positive implications. So the grace of God first is training us to renounce some things. We talked about this in Colossians. It's training us to renounce, he says, ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, ungodliness refers to Christian misconduct, right? This would be living in a way that's not congruent with the Scriptures. So, I love that Paul uses a general term here. Because some of us might be tempted to look at the list, right? And say, oh yeah, this sin's not listed here, I'm okay. But it's a general term. So, anything that does not line up with the Scriptures should be renounced. Yet, in other places, like in Colossians... And in Ephesians chapter 4, matter of fact, I'll read some of that. Paul gets more specific. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 17. Ephesians 4 verse 17. This is again Paul writing now the church at Ephesus. And he says this. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's talking about pagan people in the futility of their minds. Therefore, having, down to verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood or lying, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The point is this, that we are called to be set apart. So he gives some specifics there in Ephesians. We are to live differently than the people of this world. You say, man, this this is so redundant in this church. Have you noticed how much I'm preaching a different text? It's a pretty important principle, is it not? It's over and over and over in the Scriptures. Now, what's interesting here is that as believers, this call goes beyond our behavior. Paul says we're to put off worldly passions as well. This could be translated as lusts or appetites. So God, get this, God is calling us then... To put, yes, put together or put to death the behaviors that are not pleasing to him as well as the desires and the passions that promote those behaviors. If, if we want to walk in purity, we have to deal with the, the root of the problem. We have to go to the, 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 the passion level, the desire level, and cut it off at its root. So grace shows us how not to live, but it also shows us 
how to live. We are to live, he says, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And I want you to underline or highlight this word, these two words, in this present age. Highlight those words, present age. See, some might say that living upright was part of the Old Testament law. That was something for the past. It's not for people living under grace. That's what some people think. Others might conclude that, well, living upright is not for now, but it's for the future in the new heavens and the new earth. But yet Paul says here that we are to live upright and godly lives in this present age, which means we're to walk in obedience to the Scriptures now. We're to walk in purity. We're to walk closely to the Lord. We're to be people of prayer, people of virtue, people who walk in the fruit of the Spirit rather than the lust of the flesh. People of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So living a life of holiness means that we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and we live in an upright way. But there's one more element here and it's glorious. Look at verse 13. We're to live in a way in which we are waiting for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of talk right now about the coming of Jesus through all of this. Amid this virus, there, there, there's this talk that Jesus must be coming back. And can I just encourage you that it should not take a pandemic to cause us to take this level of interest in the coming of the Lord. We're to always live. I mean, the, the first century church lived in light of his appearing, of his imminent return. You know, I remember when, when I was a kid, and when my brother and I were finally old enough to kind of stay home by ourselves. And my, my parents would leave us for short periods of time home alone. And that's scary, right? That's scary when you start doing that as parents for the first couple of times. And what's interesting is if my brother and I uh, were doing what we were supposed to do, which didn't happen often, we would start to miss our parents and we would long for them to come home. We'd kind of peek out the window and we'd, just, we'd be ready for them to return. But on the other hand, which was more often the case, if we were misbehaving, one of us always had to be on the lookout, especially we liked to rough house, so we often broke things in the house. And we'd be trying to glue it back together or whatever, you know, this item that was broken. But we would always be on the lookout and we would actually dread the appearing of mom and dad. So I want you to think of the implications here in the context of what Paul is saying. As Christians, we should live in such a way in which we are eager for the return of Jesus. You don't have to raise your hand to this, but how many of you thought even this past week, man, I hope Jesus doesn't come back right now. <laughs> by your laughs. I, I assume I'm talking to you, all right? I've said that before, all right? We, we've, we've got to live in such a way, though, in which God, would, I know that he's omnipresent. I know that we can't hide anything from him, but how many know, like, when he returns, I, like, I want to be in church or something. I want to be being really kind to my family. I want to be doing family devotions or something. Like, I want to be doing something, ministering to the poor that's going to please him. We ought to long for the coming of the Lord. It's one of the marks of a true believer. So we have there the system of holiness and the substance of holiness. And quickly I want to close by looking at the strength of holiness. Verse 14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people 
for his possession who are zealous for good works. If you've been a Christian for any time, you know that what I'm preaching today is not the easiest thing in the world to live out. It's, not, it's not, no easy feat to live in such a counter-cultural way. I preached an entire series to the book of 1 Peter on this. This admonition to walk in holiness might seem, there might be this objection to say, well, I could never do this. It's too difficult. But in verse 14, it's as if Paul anticipates this objection, showing us that to live in such a way for a Christian is not impossible. It's not impossible. If, in fact, we are in Christ, He is empowering us. This is what this text shows us. He's empowering us to live in such a way. Listen, God never asks us to do something that He does not equip us to do. In our Wednesday night Ask Anything live stream this past week, we were talking about marriage and the command that God gives us to love our spouse. God is not asking me to do something that He hasn't equipped me to do. So I have people th- throughout the years that have come into my office and, and they've said, Pastor, I just can't love my spouse. And I say, well, it's a command in the Bible. And if you're a Christian, that means that God has given you everything you need to fulfill that command. I'm not saying it's easy. Let me clarify, it's real easy for me because I'm married to Nikki. Right? <laughs> She's watching right now. But we're capable of doing whatever it is that the Bible calls us to do because He empowers us to do so. Dr. N.T. Wright says of this verse that Jesus is welcoming us into this new way of life for which He set us free. He writes, His own death on our behalf has unlocked the door of ethical possibilities. Think about that. And we are now invited to go through into this new world, the world of genuine purity, the world where we can begin to contribute positively to people and society around us. It's very possible to live in this way because God Himself is strengthening us. In closing, I want to close with a story from the Daily Bread devotional. I think it appeared back in 1997. But it's the st- a story about the ermine, a small animal that lives in the forest of northern Europe in Asia. And the ermine are known for their snow-white fur, beautiful coat. And the devotional said of this ermine that He instinctively protects his white coat against anything that would soil it. And so hunters take advantage of this unusual trait of the ermine. So what they do, they do not set a snare to catch him, but instead here's what they do. They find his home, which is usually in the cleft of a rock or some hollowed out tree. And they smear the entrance and the interior interior with this kind of dark grime. And then the hunters set their dogs loose to find and chase the ermine. And the frightened animal flees to its home for shelter. But it sees the filth and will not enter. And so the dog traps it. Rather than soil his white coat, he, he is trapped by the dogs and captured while preserving his purity 
For the ermine, purity, see, is more precious than life. And I think, like the ermine, we need to stay clear of that which would soil our purity. It's difficult to live in such a countercultural way, but it's what we're called to. How do we do this? Well, let me just give you very practically some some tips here. One, I think that practically this means that we've got to spend more time in God's Word and prayer. That seems to be my how for everything, right? My answer, we need to be people of the Word and prayer. We need to spend more time together as a church. Exhorting one another, challenging one another. And we need to spend more time in these things than we do, dare I say, on Netflix. How much time do we waste binge-watching shows that do not glorify God? I'm not being a legalist. I'm not saying you can't ever turn on a television. I'm just saying, look at the balance. I would challenge you to do something this week. Just evaluate the time that you spend on social media, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, whatever your poison is. Just evaluate how much time you spend in those kind of mindless things. And then evaluate how much time you spend in the Word and in prayer. And therein you may find the problem, like I have often found the problem. See if it makes a difference. So be more committed this week to time in God's Word. And if you're watching online today or you're in this room and you're living in sin and you're calling yourself a Christian, I want to plead with you to repent. Refuse to walk in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord. And I'm I'm not preaching a message of damnation, though there are certainly consequences for not walking in holiness. But I'm inviting you, though I like the way N.T. Wright puts it. He, He puts a positive spin on this. Jesus is inviting us into a new and better way to be human. We're part of this, Christians, we're part of this new humanity, and we're invited into this right now. If you're watching this and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to repent of your sin and to call upon the Lord today. And I'll just close by restating my main point. The grace of God, seen in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, compels us to holiness. Real Life Community Church, let's pursue it together. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace that you have showered upon us. Thank you for the objective grace that we see in Christ's redemptive work. Help us, God, to marvel at that grace today. And may it produce in us lives that are lived for your glory. May we truly be in this time and always, may we be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Renew our passion to walk in this peculiar way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.